what a beautiful day. It's, uh, it's good to be here with all of you. And uh, I just know that God has great things in store for all of you, as well as for this little church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to come here together to worship you, to learn of you, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you prepare our hearts and minds to receive your precious word and that it take root and bear fruit in our lives and that we leave here today not the same as we came, but even closer to you, seeking you and knowing you a little better than before. In Jesus' name, amen. What must we do to do the works that God requires? That's what we've been talking about recently. It seems like the question that comes to all Christians when they start seeking the Lord and get on what we call on fire for God, they get saved by grace, and then the next thing you know, John, they're trying to figure out what they must do to do the works that God requires. Jesus answered the question in John 6, 29. He said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. That's Jesus. Amen. We've been talking about following Jesus. This is the third message in that series, as it turns out. And if you're going to entitle this part, I would call it the power of right believing. If you're going to write down a few passages of scripture or use as many fingers as you got, I'd say Matthew 18, verses 2 through 4. Genesis chapter 3, the first handful of verses, and probably John chapter 21, to name a few. Amen? So based on those scriptures, that question that we all ask, that thankfully one of the disciples asked Jesus for us, and he answered it. Based on that, though, I think you'll find when you get to really seeking God and, and wanting to serve Him and do everything that you are called to do, that word belief is going to be ever before you. Because it's not just a, a prayer, a check mark on a bucket list. It's not just believing that he exists. James said, even the devils believe and tremble. It's more. And so we're going to explore the depths of that just a little bit more today. And hopefully we'll, we'll grow from it. Amen? Because belief is what the Lord desires from us. It has to really be the root of all of our actions. Because proper action without faith as the motive, remember we learned from Balaam, is just religion. Just legalism. But proper believing, based on faith, doing the right thing, will come as a byproduct of this Right believing, all the desired works, all the religious works that 
people are seeking will come as a byproduct of this relationship with Jesus. Effortlessly, I should say. So, following Jesus and rightly believing on Him or in Him are really the same thing. Or they're so closely related that you can't really separate them. Just as James said, faith without works is dead, you can also say that without believing, there is no real following of Jesus. Remember, Judas followed him in proximity. He was the treasurer. But right following is the byproduct of right believing. A little kind of a tongue twister there, but we'll go into it a little further. But just suffice to say, in order to get this right, we first have to acknowledge our need for a Savior. And this requires humility. This is one of the hardest things. John, you, you like me, think that God called you to help those that are unchurched. That's what I thought, too, about myself. But he made it pretty clear to me that one of the biggest harvest fields that I was going to encounter and the most difficult one to, to hack into is the church. Is the church. Helping people to come out of religion and into relationship. That tender heartedness toward Jesus that we're in need of. Requires humility to acknowledge our need for a Savior. Look at uh, what Jesus said. You were talking about some interesting things. Look at Matthew chapter 18. And I'm going to start reading at the second verse. Jesus, calling to himself a child, he called a, he called a child over to him. He put him in the midst of them. And said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They were struggling. They were arguing about who was going to be the greatest amongst them. And Jesus pulls a little child over there. And he says, you have to humble yourself and become like this little child. Even if, if you even want to get into heaven. And the ones who become like this will be the greatest. <laughs> now, have you ever really thought about this passage of scripture? I think it's interesting that Jesus used a little child to illustrate humility and greatness. It's true that children often have a kind of purity and, and humility that is missing in adults. But they're certainly not selfless. <laughs> children come into this world, matter of fact, totally self-centered. Completely. Wanting what they want when they want it. It's the parent's obligation 
to challenge Satan's claim on that child's life, isn't it? Because they're born with that sinful nature. They are to train that child out of selfishness, out of self-centeredness, through love and discipline and love. I know I said it twice and I meant it in that order. <laughs> when we were kids, I don't remember any parents actually having it right. And in my home, it was never really the same. Even after I was grown, I, <laughs> I never did anything to the kids. And Devonna would let them do way too much for way too long until she got so angry that they were, ooh, everybody was in trouble. <laughs> All wrong. <laughs> Nevertheless, another message for another day. But I just want to make a point to you here about this passage of scripture. The trait that Jesus was really more likely referring to was this child's dependence upon others. A child, though they may be self-centered, they're certainly not self-sufficient, are they? <laughs> only, only, even once they get to what they call this terrible twos, which I don't like that term, but they, they, they think they want a little independence, but really they're even more dependent than ever, right? One of humility's dominant characteristics, I would say, is God, dependency, and not self-sufficiency. And that's what we're after. That's what's needed of God's children. Little children need help. And unless we admit that we can't save ourselves and turn to God for his salvation, we can't be saved either, can we? And to do this, you have to believe. The closest words I've found to describe the kind of believing that God requires of us in human terms is trusting dependence upon Jesus resulting in confident corresponding actions. That's just from my vocabulary book that I wrote. Believing, though, is imperative to a successful relationship with God. Look at Genesis chapter 3 for just a second. We'll look at a picture here. Adam and Eve started it all off. I'm going to read the first few verses. This is about the fall in Genesis chapter 3, starting at the first verse. It says, Now the serpent, that's Satan, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So 
when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. <laughs> you know their sin was unbelief. That's it. They had already stopped believing that they would die. God told them they would die if they did that. And they had already stopped believing it. Eating the fruit was just the manifestation of the sin of unbelief that was already present in their hearts, wasn't it? And they believed they would have died when they ate it. They wouldn't have ate it. So eating the fruit was just a manifestation of doubting God's word first. If they were settled on the word, it wouldn't have happened. And it's the same with us today. I can't make you, I can't tell you how serious of a thing this is about this word right here. Especially in the times in which we live. John was talking about the times when he wrote that song. It was quite a while back, but even more so today. Even more so today. There's a dangerous times in which we live. Dangerous times to doubt the Word of God. I was talking to my, my stepdad, who's 86 years old, the other day. A man raised in church. How many of you are Catholics or have been Catholic? Hard to go back, I know, <laughs> but we had a bunch of Catholics. Uh, he was a Lutheran, which very, very similar. Okay, he's always been a Lutheran involved, and and there's a lot of Baptists here. I know when when the music got loud and people started dancing, they're the ones that moved to the back. <laughs> and I was my great grandfather was a Methodist pastor. We we came from that that way, and then when I was a kid, the I went through a generation where all the family had kind of moved away from God and into the bar rooms. And uh, so I bounced around on whatever church bus was coming around. So I was a Nazarene, a Baptist, a Methodist, Lutheran, whatever. So I'm not trying to offend anyone here, but I want to tell you a story. I was talking to him on the phone, and I said, you know, it's really sad, something I read today. It's kind of crazy. And I told him, I said, the Pope met with all these religious leaders from from all over the world, Muslims and Jews and everything. And he, and he decided that, uh, he, he declared that, that all the world's religions were just different ways to the same God. And he goes, yeah. I went, well, that's, that's wrong. You know? He said, well, it's just a matter of interpretation, I guess. I said, what? What would you say? I said, that's not what the Bible said. Well, but even the Bible can be interpreted. This is what we're dealing with in the church, John. In the church. And I looked it up. I wanted to be sure that what I was saying was right because I don't want to cast aspersions. This is actually the, the Pope that I've liked the most in my whole life. <laughs> Still do. But here's what he said. This came from 
the Catholic World Report. I looked on one of their own sources to make sure, and it was worse than I thought. Here's what it said. The Third Vatican Council concluded today with Pope Francis announcing that Catholicism is now a modern and reasonable religion which has undergone evolutionary changes. The time has come to abandon all intolerance. We must recognize that religious truth evolves and changes. Truth is not absolute or set in stone. Even atheists acknowledge the divine. Through acts of love and charity, the atheist acknowledges God as well and redeems his own soul, becoming an active participant in the redemption of humanity. Can I tell you, that is sacrilege. And that is the spirit of the Antichrist which is very much alive and active in this world. It has been for 2,000 years. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's not God. That's not God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. I was just thinking of another scripture. Do you realize how sad it is to think that Jesus Christ, God himself, would come down from heaven and be made like us and suffer terribly the way he did and bleed and die just to be one of the ways to God? Can you see now why the Father would be so offended by those who mistreat or mishandle Jesus Christ in this life? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. How much worse punishment he just described. Paul has just, well, I say Paul. The writer of Hebrews had just described how God had judged those Israelites in the desert who were unbelieving and hard-hearted and turned back. He said, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the only thing that would cause you to miss God, is missing Jesus. I like the way he ends up this, this chapter, though, in verse 39. He says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith. And preserve their souls. That's you. Amen. But it, yeah, well, it just it's just it freaks me out a little bit. This is where faithful people, these are the kind of messages that faithful people, not unlike yourselves, are getting up on Sunday mornings and going to a place where they think they're being taught about God. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a scripture 
that every Christian has to come to terms with, and it'll help you when you do. I've known many of Christians who I was comfortable knowing, thinking that they really were Christians, and it come to find out they thought that the, this Bible here was just a book written by men about God. As long as you think that, you're in error. And it will cause you to slip and to walk in error because whenever it confronts you in your life, when you're doing something apart from what it says, you'll make an excuse for it. Well, it's just a book written by men about God. It's kind of a guideline, you see. No, it's not. This word is alive and active. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed is what the NIV says. This is the English Standard Version. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is God breathed, given by divine inspiration. This is a book written by God to you. We can't add anything. There's no book of Mormon that goes along with it. There's no other epistles that goes with it. That's all unholy. And there's a curse declared in the last few lines of this Bible for those who do such things. I'm not trying to come against everyone, anyone. I love everyone. And God wants nothing more than for them to come into the truth. But it's only the truth that will set them free. And I'm just trying to prepare you because these days that we live in, if the devil can't keep people from claiming Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, what he'll do is he'll just come into the church and he'll try to change doctrine and, and to muddy the waters so that it's just almost impossible to find out. You know, it's like, will the, tr will the real Jesus please stand up? But let me tell you this, if your earnest prayer is, Lord, I want to know you and only you and your truth and you have to teach me. That was my only condition on being a messenger of his. You have to teach me. I don't know who to believe out here. And I believe he's been faithful. But back to Adam and Eve. If they would have run to God when this serpent came and tempted them to disbelieve what he had told them, they wouldn't have doubted. But they doubted the word because the devil tempted them and they listened and it caused them to doubt God's love for them. In verse 1, the devil got, he, he tempted them to disbelieve the word, what God had said, that's the word. Then, in verses 4 and 5, he outright lied about the word. He said, that's not true. You'll not surely die. And then he, he tempted them to doubt God's goodness. In other words, God's hiding from something. God's withholding something from you. And he got them to start thinking about that. And when they started doubting God's goodness and his love... And his provision for them, lust entered into their hearts. They wanted more. They wanted more than what God had or would provide based on this lie that the devil had told them, even though he was already providing perfectly for them and always would have. 
me one amen. I'll move on. God's love is perfect for you. He made you. He knows what's best for you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him will never perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5a says, But for God shows His love for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He goes on to say, How much more now that you have believed and been saved? If He... If he loved us when we was out there working for the devil, John, how much more do you think he loves us now? Yet we listen to that old devil beat us up and condemn us. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Ephesians chapter 2 it says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And 1 John 4 Verses 9 through 11 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, religion tells you love one another and then God will love you. This says we love because he loved us first. You can't give away what you have not received. God is love. (laughs) So we see that this following Jesus, this believing on Jesus, it gets a little more serious. The relationship gets more serious as you learn about it. Just like growing in any relationship. Remember, like we said last week, all sorts of people follow Jesus. Most of them for the wrong reasons. Some political, some to see the miracles, some to get the food. Others for the right reasons. But we saw that um, Peter, on the night of the Lord's betrayal, he followed the Lord at a distance. And we determined that in an effort to be safe from the ridicule, from the persecution, and for whatever else being associated with Jesus at that time would have brought on him, Peter had done the most dangerous thing possible by allowing distance between him and the Lord. And we can do the same thing today by allowing distance in our relationship with the Lord. We make ourselves vulnerable to all matter of temptation. And unfortunately, Peter succumbed to it 
and it's not uncommon for Christians to do the same if they allow this space, this distance in the relationship. I touched on a few things previously that can cause this distance, and I was going back over this, meditating on it. The Lord said, you son, you just, those were right, but you just scratched the surface. There's a deeper root. Because we talked about the fear was one of the reasons. Fear of being associated with Jesus. And in the times in which we live, that's one of the big things. People have a fear of man. They rather, they rather seek the approval of man than they would of God. And so they'll follow at a distance. They want to jump on board with Jesus and be, be a strong follower and, and, and make their voice known in this terrible time and culture in which we live. But they'll follow at a distance to see how popular it is in that particular setting or environment before they'll put their hat in the ring. This is dangerous. It's dangerous. Distance. Don't distance yourself from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Your home is in heaven for all eternity, and eternity is a much longer time than this fraction of a second we're here. You're being tested. Just being busy is another thing that I mentioned. A busy life will certainly cause some distance. Another thing I mentioned is just time in the relationship. The honeymoon is over, remember? You know, every relationship, and when you're in it for the long haul, you have to learn some things. You have to be steady on your course. There's, you know, it, it can be lonely traveling this, this path with Jesus, this narrow road. The broad road to hell is, is really busy. It's not so lonely. There's always people out there for you. But the narrow road, sometimes you only find, Jesus said there's only a few that ever find it. So when you're going along this way, other sojourners are not so hard to find, I mean, not so easy to find. All these things, though, God told me, son, you really, that's just, the deeper root, those are just the manifestation. The, the deeper root is really what you're talking about today, unbelief. Unbelief causes distance. Unbelief in this word and in God's love for you. If you don't believe that Jesus was the payment for your sins and that it's all been overpaid on your behalf and that you have become a joint heir with Christ, with the same rights and privileges as the natural born child adopted, then you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle to know whether he will provide for you, will give you the things you want when you want them, and provide for you as well as you can if you go, you go off the reservation, so to speak. Trust me, it's never a good idea. It's better just to settle on this word. Agree with it. Just say, no matter what, if God said it, that settles it. It'll keep you from struggling when you come face to face with the serpent at the tree. And he tempts you then. If you've already talked about it and you made up your mind, then you won't be tempted. And matter of fact, instead of running from God, you'll run to him and say, Hey, Lord, that old devil, 
He tried to get me right here, but I know that your word is true. I know that you love me, and no one will ever provide better for me. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you who has an evil or sinful, unbelieving heart. You see how the writer put unbelief and sin and evil right there together? Leading you to fall away from the living God. So it is possible to do. You can harden your heart toward God to the extent that you're just no longer sensitive to the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. And you will become reprobate at some point. Again, not you. <laughs> None of you here are going to ever do that. Because you're never going to start disbelieving in God's goodness and his love for you and his provision for you because he is the only thing that is true in this life. And you can take that to the bank. <laughs> There's another thing. Uh, you can, this separation can come just from being worldly. And, and Christians, we, we do this a lot, especially in this, in this culture in which we live. God has blessed us with so many things. The very things that is used to bless us with can bring separation or distance in our relationship. And then we can get into to, to order to justify our lives. We get into the sin of comparison. I'd encourage you, don't look around at the world to legislate your morality. God is the same yesterday Today and forever. He is not evolving. He's not changed his mind about anything that he said. I was, you know, I go through, I told you I try to go through this every 90 days. Right now I'm in Leviticus. I just finished Leviticus. I'm in Numbers. And man, you know, reading the Old Covenant, read through Leviticus. All the details of the law and the punishment for the things. The little things. If a lizard fell in your pot, you know. They, the law was hard. And you know what it should do when you read the Old Testament? Make you so thankful for what Jesus has done for you and freed you from. But it shows you his character and his holiness too. He showed us his holiness, his standard in the Old Covenant. And thankfully we do have a Savior who bore the payment for our sin. But please don't let the world's teachings and traditions deceive you into calling those things which are evil good. That's always a temptation, especially these days when the government is, is changing the way that they say God feels about these things. They're wrong. They're wrong. And there's only one government that ultimately we answer to, and that's, that's a king. And his name is Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding or are not wise. God said, Jesus, I mean, Paul, Paul said, Don't compare yourselves amongst yourselves. And thereby, thereby justifying yourself. You say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so over here. You see? You can always look around and find somebody you're better than or doing better than and, and make yourself feel better about the distance in your relationship with the Lord. But don't do that. Just go to the Word. 
compare yourself with Jesus, and then you'll get back to complete humility, relying upon Him for everything. He's your provider. He's the maker. He's the fixer. He's the helper. He's the lover. He's the friend. Even the sin of comparison, though, when you think about it, really goes back to the same sin of unbelief, doesn't it? It's just doubting God's goodness, doubting God's word. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. On the opposite side of the coin, I, I focused a lot on Peter and his shortcomings. I love Peter. But I want to look at, I want you to think about the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He got it right. It's good to look in on the life of John. Five times in the Bible we see John referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know where all those five are? In his own gospel. He wrote it. <laughs> you think that's a bad thing? I think that's a very good thing. He had a revelation of God's love for him. And it empowered him to live a successful Christian life when others were failing. When Peter followed at a distance on the night Jesus was arrested, John didn't. He went right into the courtroom. In John 13, that night before Jesus was arrested at the Last Supper as we know it, he's, John was the one leaning up against Jesus in his bosom, the King James said. Or reclining back against him. And when Peter said, ask him who's the one that's going to betray him, he leaned back and just asked him right there because he was that close. You see? And because of that, look at John 19, and we're almost done here. Because of that closeness that John felt, that love that he knew, In John 19, when they crucified Jesus, all the other disciples had run away. <coughs> when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, I'm at the 23rd, I'm going to skip down to the 25th verse. The soldiers had crucified Jesus. They'd done everything that they were going to do. Treated him so terribly. Verse 25 says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, this is all the Marys were there. His mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Because, you see, Peter had allowed that distance to come in between him and the Lord. And because of it, he was tempted and he denied the Lord and he felt convicted, he felt condemnation, and he ran away. On the other hand, John had a great revelation of the Lord's love for him. And because of it, he never allowed that distance in the relationship. And because of that, on the day the Lord was crucified, John was there with his mother, with Jesus' mother and family and friends there at the foot of the cross of spiritual employment. And Jesus, 
assigned his mother over to John to live with him for the rest of her life. Fortunately, Peter's story has a happy ending. (laughs) As far as we know from the recorded life of Peter, he never permitted such dangerous distance in that relationship again, and neither did John. Look at John 21, and then I'm done. The 21st chapter of John, I think this is besides the 14th chapter of my, this is probably my favorite. Starting at the fourth verse, this is after Jesus was resurrected. This is one of the times that he appeared to the disciples, and this time he appeared to seven of them, including Peter. Peter had gone fishing, and six of the others had decided to go with him. And they were just coming in. They'd been out fishing all night, and they didn't catch anything. They were close enough to shore to see up there, and there was a man. He hollered out, have you, have you have, do you have any fish? And they said no. And it was Jesus. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast a net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that, heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the full net of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, won by the grace of God. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast now. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to the disciples himself after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Three times he had denied him, so he gave him the opportunity to tell him he loved him three times. He restored him right there on the beach. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. History tells us that Peter was crucified upside down alongside of his wife. 
not wanting to be crucified in the same manner that his Lord was, didn't think himself worthy. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them and one, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is this going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he wouldn't die. But if it's his will that he remain until he comes, what's it to you? So Peter, hearing he wasn't going to die a very happy death, wanted to know about John. And Jesus told him, it's none of your business. You just follow me. And he's telling you all the same today. But John had it right. <coughs> History also tells us that they tried to kill John. He was the only disciple that wasn't martyred. But they tried to, uh, it says they tried to boil him in a, a vat of like hot oil or something. And, and, uh, and history, not the Bible, but history says that he swam around in it like a refreshing bath. <laughs> the anointing was so strong they couldn't kill him. So he was sent to the island of Patmos, and then he was released when he was older. And he just died of, uh, of old age, I guess, and just went home to be with the Lord. We thank God. I have a lot more, but I'm going to stop there because I know that uh, we've already been here quite a while today. And I thank God for all of you. But the moment that we get our bearings and we realize that we need to follow Jesus more closely, all we have to do is just, just start right where we're at. Don't... Uh, don't wallow in the, the failures of our life. He doesn't like that. Just deal with it and move on. God is the, the God of today. He's the God of the future and not of the past. Amen? And He will lead you along life's journey. When you're traveling through unfamiliar territory, remember this. It's wise to follow closely behind the one who leads us. The one who knows where He's going. Like Peter, we might be following the right person at the wrong distance, so we need to make sure we close that gap. And it's a it's a long journey, so don't let don't let it get old. Keep it fresh and new, just like a marriage or any other relationship. Love is a choice, and so is believing in this word. And there will be times when you're not here amongst other believers, and being encouraged like this to trust in this word and in God's goodness and in His love and His provision for you. But it never changes. He will never leave you or forsake you. He has gone to prepare a place for you. And for now, you are just here to be an ambassador of His love and His light and His goodness, His grace that saved you. Helping others to come into the understanding of His mercy and goodness and provision for their lives. And if you're just wondering still, what must I do? Just remember, Jesus said, just believe on me. And that in, entails following him closely, being in close relationship. Spend time alone with the Lord. Spend time in the word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time meditating on the scriptures about the promises he has made regarding you. 
and you'll find that faith will well up inside of you and it will be easier and easier and more exciting as you have a track record of faithfulness, His faithfulness in your life, answered prayers and miracles and signs and wonders. And the more you acknowledge them and thank Him for these things, the more you'll see them manifest. It's just funny. It's an amazing adventure, this adventure in grace. There's nothing like it. There's power in right believing. Revelation of His payment, His grace, His love will produce right living. If you're worrying about your actions, stop thinking about that. Start thinking about His finished work on your behalf. Start believing who He says you are now that you have been redeemed and that that sinful nature has been evicted from you and the Spirit of God lives inside of you now. The grace of God is limitless regarding you and it'll make Jesus love you. It'll make you love Jesus so much that all the things religion tries to do, you will do effortlessly when you come into a great revelation of his love for you his faithfulness toward you Titus 2.11 says the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us how to live holy godly lives the grace of God will teach you those things and you will do it out of an overflow of thankfulness and gratitude toward the God who saved you and loves you We have to become like little children, dependent upon Him. You're already dependent upon Him, but you have to acknowledge that and grow in the understanding of your complete dependence upon Him. Laying aside all your self-effort and your pride and acknowledging, I can't do anything without Him. I don't want to try anymore. I'm tired. He loves that. He loves that. And He'll teach you the way you should go. Just like we're supposed to raise up our children in the way they should go. He'll do that for you. You're his child and he loves you. Let his peace be the umpire in your heart. Help you make your decisions in life. For everything. Father, we thank you for this day and for this word. We thank you for the simplicity of your truth. We thank you that we do believe. Help our unbelief is our prayer. Any area that we disbelieve your word or your love, help us to overcome that so we can walk in greater victory in this life. In every area of our life, help us to turn every part of our life over to you, not withholding anything from you, knowing that you will do what's best for us because you love us. And you have a great plan for us. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. You're dismissed. If any of you need prayer, I'll be up here.